previously I was asking for some prayer for myself for this Thursday when I went and uh, was invited into Batchild School to talk to some of the year sixes about can you, the question they gave me was can you believe in the Big Bang and God? And the link came from Lucy, I think from one of your friends uh, who teaches there. And thanks for praying, had an excellent time. Uh, hopefully it gave people something to think about. But also, I think what came out of it, chatting to a few at the end, it gave encouragement to those who are Christians and feeling a bit under pressure. So let's keep praying. But what I did, because there's only three bits of physics evidence for the Big Bang, which you can't explain other ways. So I took three bits of evidence for why, because I said I'm not going to talk about why I believe believing in God, that's too vague. So I talked about why I was a Christian, why I believe in Jesus. And one of the bits of evidence I gave was books. The fact we actually have books. Now that might seem a bit random, but when I was researching it, it's sort of things I vaguely knew about, but I looked at actually looked up to it, as much as you can research things on the internet and as much as Wikipedia and similar places are reliable, which is okay most of the time. But when you look at books, the, there's the first reference to books comes in about the first century AD in a secular author. But when you look at what books are available, what books have been found, I cannot find on a quick, well, quick, about one hour search on the internet, any book produced before 500 AD which isn't a Bible or part of a Bible. Now, what you've got to remember is books were not, if you like, this sort of thing so much as this sort of thing. In effect, books were the cheap, ready, easy paperback equivalent, not the posh, bound, leather one. When you look at libraries, the posh bound stuff, if you like, scrolls, was your Greek plays, your Greek novels, your Greek histories. But by the end of, by 400 AD, everything you find of the Christian literature is in book form. Because you can get at it, you can find out what it says. What it says is important. Christians were earlier doctors of books because they actually wanted to know what Jesus said and what Paul said. The first full book of the Bible, with all the Bible, is called the Codex Sinaiticus. Dates from about 350 AD. The New Testament part of it is in the British Library. You can go up to the British Library and see part of it on show. If you don't want to pay for a train up to St Pancras and walk along the road, you can go online and you can find all of it online. A few years ago, Lynn and I were in Dublin and we didn't, weren't aware of it before we went, but we went to the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin Castle. Chester Beatty was a mining engineer in the Middle East and bought up everything he could get hold of which was worth getting hold of. He's got books in that library of the Gospels dating back to 250 AD and of Paul's letters dating back to about 200 AD. And there's fragments dating back 50 to 100 years before that. But the thing which really struck me in the library 
you look at the bits of the Bible and they're worn, they're used. He's also got some very old Qurans dating back to about the 13th century and they are beautiful, illustrated and looks like they've been hardly touched. People developed the Bible, if you like, and books because they wanted to know. It was important to individuals. It wasn't, it wasn't for people who were posh. It wasn't for people who were important, who were sticking in their library. It was for life. We can trust what the Bible says. This, you know, one of the reasons I went for the Bible, you look at how far the Bible, first Bibles we've got are from when Jesus lived. And proportionately, that's about the same distance as some of the evidence we've got for the Big Bang from the Big Bang. There's no evidence the Big Bang actually happened. There's some evidence which you can't explain easily if the Big Bang didn't happen. So if people say there's no evidence Jesus lived, true. But that's the same level as saying there's no evidence the Big Bang occurred. There's an awful lot of evidence which is very difficult to explain away if Jesus didn't live and didn't rise again. So, I hope the kids had a lot of, got a lot out of it. I got a lot out of preparing it. Because it's really reinforced to me. We can trust what the Bible says. Okay, that's not the reason we are Christians in a sense, because we trust in Jesus. But it is something absolutely amazing. And even the first book I could find any record of which wasn't a Bible, was a Jewish prayer book. The first book I can find any reference to which isn't Bible or Jewish thing is about 800 AD. Right, 1 John. I'm going to read from ver- chapter 3 from verse 10 just to give us the context of the main passage. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. 
And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In the week that I was preparing this, I read a blog by Jenny Pollock, who writes for various New Frontiers groups, including a few hours a week for relational mission. And this blog was on the benefits of stating the blindingly obvious. What I'm going to say today is blindingly obvious from the passage I've just read. I'm not even going to go beyond this passage because sometimes you need to go beyond the passage to other parts of the Bible to understand it. What John is saying here is so blindingly obvious, we just need to read the words and actually put them into practice. But one of the things I liked about Jenny Pollock's article was the only reason something is blindingly obvious is because we keep repeating it. If we don't keep repeating it, it's not blindingly obvious. Now that sounds an obvious statement to make, but, you know, so I've got no apologies for saying something which is, you probably know, you've probably heard umpteen times, and it is blindingly obvious, but we need to keep reminding ourselves, because otherwise we forget. Anyway, as has already been pointed out, as John goes through his letter, he lays layer on layer. So I read verse 10 from the previous section because that gives an introduction and you probably saw the last verse here it gives a bit into the next bit I'm going, not going to cover most of the passage in fact I've chopped off a bit I was originally given at the end but I'm going to mainly look at from verse 16 onwards but as a quick reminder of the layers he's building up at the beginning of chapter 3 he reminds us that we are children of God He reminds us we should not make a practice of sinning, but of righteousness. And then he makes the point at the end, in verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So moving on to verse 16, we are reminded, by this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, lay down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers now one of the most blindingly obvious things about being a Christian is as I say it's what it says on the tin if we are a Christian we're a follower of Jesus Christ therefore if we follow Jesus we should therefore imitate what he does and we're reminded here that Jesus laid down his life for us Therefore, we have a responsibility to lay down our lives for our brothers. As he loved us, we love others. That is easy to say when it's abstract. But notice the way John uses his words. In verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 17... But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? As he goes from verse 16 to verse 17, John is taking us, if you like, from the abstract, love your brothers, to the specific, you see your brother in need. 
going from, if you like, the general to the individual. So, as comes out later in the passage, as I read, what matters is not talk, but deeds. To give, let's think of a few examples of actually loving our brothers. I don't know what you think about fair trade. When I was a student, I was quite active in a very small way in some of the early stages of fair trade. If you know me, you know I have a few doubts about the way it's developed since then. But buying things so that it's more beneficial for the people who make them is a good idea. But it is very abstract. It doesn't involve us necessarily thinking about what we're doing. Nowadays, you can just look for a fair trade logo on something and think possibly that's okay. When I was involved as a student, it was very much find out where it comes from, who is involved with it. Get, try and find a bit more. Second example. We had earlier this year MoMA from Sierra Leone staying with us. His church runs a uh, primary school uh, fee-paying one. In Africa and a lot of other poorer countries, you have a lot of smallish fee-paying schools because quite often the government schools are not that good quality. And so, but not everyone can afford the fees. So Joy encouraged us, for those who wanted to, to actually sponsor, pay the fees for a child in that school. And so a bit earlier this year, money was sent out which will pay the fees for nine children for a year. So nine children whose parents wouldn't have been able to afford to send them to that school now can. But how does it apply here? Well, we do things like make lunch. We do things like little angels, which serve the community, show God's love in the community. I'll come back to it a bit, bit more. But there's all sorts of levels we can get involved in in showing God's love. But I think one of the most important things is to make sure we really get our brains about what love is, in a sense. Now, the title Sam gave for me for this is Love is a Verb. Let me give a quite famous quote by C.S. Lewis, where he said, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbour. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you start behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. In our society, we think of love as a feeling. You know, when people talk about falling in love, 
It's as if some sort of pink cotton wool sort of thing has enveloped them or whatever, I don't know. Uh, depends what your image of falling in love is. But it's some sort of, you know, feeling which is all very ephemeral and not really that substantial necessarily. And then if you, ha if you see love as a feeling, you can fall in love and you can just as quickly fall out of love. Last night, Lynn and I were at uh, uh, the Arden Theatre where there was a Belgian folk group singing. And most of their songs, although we didn't understand them because they were in Western Flemish, seemed to be about people falling in love, getting married and realising they made a big mistake. You know, but that's the sort of general feeling, you know, people tend to have in society. But actually, love is something we do far more than something we feel. Because if, when you, th you think, oh, I need to love someone, if you're thinking in terms of feelings, it can be very difficult to wind up your feelings to feel that you could do something for someone. But when you see love is action, it doesn't matter what you feel about the person. You might think the person is an idiot and a right prat, or whatever other phrase you want to use, which is, I probably shouldn't use in a sermon. That doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is, what do you do, not what do you feel? But as C.S. Lewis says, start acting as if you love someone, and you'll find that the feelings usually follow. Now, acting like the children of God does not make us children of God. But when the children of God behave as God's children, then they know that who they really are and their hearts are reassured. Because notice what, what does John do? Immediately after talking about loving uh, brothers, he goes on to verse 19. Actually, let's go back to 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So the way we get reassurance that we are actually children of God is when our behaviour reflects we are children of God. So say, it doesn't make us children of God, but if being a child of God doesn't affect how we behave, you then have to start asking questions of yourself. Now, I'm going to jump a verse, because it... Actually, I'll read it in the order here. Verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Right. God has given us a conscience, which I think is what is meant by heart in this context. 
Now, sometimes our conscience condemns us, and sometimes it doesn't. I think this goes back to the bit I was saying earlier in the service. Our conscience is useful because it can warn us when we're doing something we know we really shouldn't be, but it's not reliable. So we can have a bad conscience when we don't actually need to. And sometimes we can have a good conscience about something we ought to have a bad conscience about. You know, it's a helpful guide God's given us, but it's not absolutely reliable. So, what does it say? In verse 21 and into verse 22, if our heart doesn't condemn us, if our conscience is telling us we're doing what we should be doing, loving our brothers and sisters as we should, we know that whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, uh, Luke was talking a bit about confidence in praying last Sunday. One of the bits of confidence we can have in our prayers is because our conscience is clear between us and God because we know that we are doing what we should be doing. And therefore we know we can have confidence as we bring our prayers. But jumping back to verse 20, sometimes we don't have that confidence. We don't have that clear conscience. Now obviously the first thing to ask ourselves in that context is, is your conscience not clear for good reason? In which case you've probably got a fairly good idea what it is and what you need to do about it. But sometimes our conscience might not be clear and there's actually no reason why it shouldn't be clear. Sometimes our conscience deceives us. Because sometimes we'll think, well, I haven't really loved this person or that person as much as I should have done. But that might, not necess- that might be the case, in which case there's something to do about it, but it might not be. So what does it say? Whenever our heart <coughs> condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. So when our conscience condemns us unjustly, we do not need to fear that we are now separated from God. Because God knows who we are, he knows we are his children. So if you think that your conscience is separating you from God so you won't hear your prayers, ask God, is there something I need to put right? And if there is, usually, as I say, you know what it is. Usually when I know there's something separate, I know what it is, I just don't want to do anything about it. I'd rather do anything else to ignore it or... You know, what's the psychological term? Displacement? You know, rather than doing what I know I should do, I'll do almost anything else just to make sure I don't have to think about it because I'm too busy. So when we know we need to put something right, we deal with it. 
If God isn't reminding you there's something you need to put right, you can go ahead with a clear conscience before God. Even if your conscience is saying, you know, there's some nebulous kind of thing which is actually not quite right with you. If God wants you to put something right, he makes it clear. He doesn't make it, it's not a nebulous feeling. Let's go on with the passage. So from verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. Right, John's doing this again. He's going from the plural to the singular. Right, I think as Martin uh, from Maidstone, Vine Church Mason said when he was here, some you know, theologians can have problems with John. Some people think he must have been going a bit uh, doolally because he's getting old. And, you know, but I think this is very deliberate. But look, what is his commandment? That we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. Now, I'm not sure if your edition is the same as mine, but that looks like two things. But actually, John is saying it's one thing. We are called to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. That actually, in some ways, can be a bit scary. Because that implies it's possible to follow God's commandments and not love. I don't want to be in that situation. So we're called to love one another. And then when we keep his commandments, he's gone back to the plural again now, we abide in God and God is in us. So, our position of abiding in God, abiding in Jesus, is related to how we love one another. Somebody recently was tweeting a bit from, I think, George Whitfield, who was uh, a bit like the Wesleys, did a lot of preaching out in the open air. And the quote was to the effect that if you preach and you haven't annoyed anyone, it probably wasn't a very good sermon. Now, I'm not deliberately going out of my way to annoy you. (laughs) You haven't heard what I'm going to say yet. But actually, there is a role for the Holy Spirit to come along and disturb us, if you like, annoy us, because sometimes we need to face up to where we are. Now, it's entirely up to you whether you choose to do what I'm going to suggest. When I first put it down, I thought, oh yes, that's going to be easy. But uh, then when I uh, tried thinking about it further, it isn't. But let's, let me have a go. <coughs> I think this is my last bit, yeah. Right, first thing, what I want you to do during the week, think about who do you find it most difficult to love in the church. 
Well, some people have got immediately uh, can tell who that is. Uh, looks like husband or wife usually. Uh, right. But then ask yourself, how can I find a way to show Jesus' love to them? It's easy to love those who are like us and think like us. It's a bit harder with those who don't. If you think that's too difficult, start by praying that God will bless the person. Now, if you do that every day during this week, that will affect you. Not say it's going to change you straight away. You might need to keep praying for that person for a month or two months before you get round to doing anything. But can I set that as a challenge? Because we are called to love one another, and I know we do. But we can always do it better. And when I was thinking about it myself, I can see I can see how sometimes I will sort of drift into one part of the hall or another afterwards. So therefore, not that I'm deliberately avoiding some people, but or maybe I am subconsciously. But it's easy to stick. I know that's the problem of doing something like this. I'm setting myself up, aren't I? So I'm going to have to make sure I spend two minutes in each bit of the hall today, otherwise people are going to get worried. If you think I'm avoiding you, just drop me an email and I have to start uh, finding some way to let you know that God loves you. Okay. <laughs> but, again, what's been said earlier today, we're looking to see the church grow. One way we can grow is love one another. And Jesus said that people will know that what he teaches is true because people will see our love one for another. And one of the things, you know, we're not as diverse as I'd like to be, but churches are a more diverse place than most parts of this country. So the fact that we can show love to one another, to people who are not like us, will speak volumes. Let's pray. Sam will be thinking, what is he going to do after I step down? Lord, we want to be people who love in word, sorry, love in deed and in truth, and not in word and talk. Word and talk's good, but Lord, we want the deed and truth. So Lord, I pray that over the coming days you'll be showing us more and more how we can love one another in deed and truth. Amen.